When was the last time you visited a bank branch, called a broker to make a stock trade, or paid the babysitter in cash? Sometimes it's hard to remember those days when we couldn't run our financial lives on a phone. The growth of the fintech industry and interviews with some of the industry's biggest players. That's today on Brainstorm, the podcast about how tech is reshaping our lives. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Brainstorm. I'm Michal Avram. And I'm Brian O'Keefe. Michal, I have a question for you. Yes. What's your earliest memory of banking? Well, when I was growing up in Israel, my mom had a friend who worked at the bank, and I thought that was pretty glamorous. And this is going to make me sound really old, but I kind of remember like getting dressed up to go to the bank, as crazy as that sounds. What about you, Brian? I love that, going to the bank as an event. And for me, it was a big deal. I used to love it when my mom would go to the bank to cash a check, not really to go into the bank, but to go to the drive through And she would pull up and she would get the tube and put her check in and it would go through the pneumatic tube system. And the teller would then send it back with some money in it and a lollipop for me. So that's why I liked it. But you know, that seemed like really cutting edge technology. It's basically the Hyperloop, Brian, you know. So it yeah, was. Yeah, it is the Hyperloop. <laughs> Maybe that's where the whole Hyperloop idea came from. But compare that to what we do on our phones now. You know, like we send money with Venmo and the money goes instantly. It's really kind of incredible. And people are just, you know, accepting it as the way we do things now. Yeah, even more so now during and post-pandemic, you know, all of these companies, these services that we know as, you know, more and more as household names, they've really exploded in the past year or so. Absolutely. And let's get some perspective on how this has been developing from someone who spends a lot of time focused on fintech. Matt Harris is a partner at Bain Capital Ventures. I started thinking about financial technology and, and focusing on it exclusively around 20 years ago. And at that time, when people used the term fintech, they generally meant vendors to banks. So there were a set of companies, Fiserv, FIS, Jack Henry, Global Payments. And those companies were basically 100% of the universe of what people thought of as financial technology. It was a set of industry-specific vendors. If you fast forward to today, you know, that is still a relevant definition. But the, to my mind, more exciting set of fintech companies are a set of companies that actually compete with the incumbents. In many ways, sort of modern fintech dates back to the founding of Square by Jack Dorsey, where you had an already legendary Silicon Valley founder, Jack Dorsey, having founded Twitter prior, decided to get into the payments business, which was a surprise to all and a delight to me anyway. And that really inaugurated the sort of legitimacy of this new form of fintech where you had this very design-minded, technology-driven founder who thought he could do better for, in his case, merchants, and indeed did do better. So when we were building Square, we, we realized that, wow, the receipt is something that's never really been designed or looked at. And it's, it would be so easy if you built a cohesive system to actually, and that carries the entire transaction to create a receipt that is useful. And that really showed the way for other founders who started exploring other parts of payments and then eventually lending. 
asset management, wealth management, insurance, and, and soon the dominoes started to fall. If we kind of agree that the modern fintech industry started with Square, what happened shortly after the advent of Square was the global financial crisis. Breaking news here, stocks all around the world are tanking because of the crisis on Wall Street. It really shook loose a lot of brand value and consumer loyalty to banks. Banks went from being kind of neutral to positive, you know, white pillars, corner of the community, fiduciary, all sorts of good things to being you know, the monsters that wrecked the global economy, basically. We're very angry at Wall Street. It's the heart of capitalism, American capitalism especially. That's why we're here today at Wall Street. And that was a real salutary moment for fintech companies. But also, frankly, the banks were very distracted. And I'm using banks as kind of shorthand for all the regulated incumbents. The insurance companies were distracted. AIG was being carved apart, the asset managers and wealth managers, everyone was in turmoil. And so they had other things to worry about, mainly the regulators and their own capital situations. And so they didn't give fintech too much thought. But then Jamie Dimon, whose annual letters in a way can kind of chronicle the incumbent reaction, wrote uh, what we call the Silicon Valley is coming letter, where he didn't declare war, but it, in effect kind of declared that war had begun and that the incumbents were under siege. He certainly sent up the clarion call that these fintech companies were relevant commercial traction that had to be paid attention to. And that inaugurated a new chapter where these banks became quite open to new vendors. So starting then, you know, eight, nine years ago, they started looking for new vendors who might be able to provide them with new intellectual property, new tools for delighting their customers. And then also they started building more. They started building, quote unquote, neo banks of their own, challenger banks internally. Hmm. Uh, most of those efforts failed. In fact, the only one that really matters today is actually Goldman Sachs, who did a very logical thing, which is to say, if we're going to do disruptive things. Why don't we pick businesses that we're not already in? So Marcus is Goldman's uh, global consumer business. Our purpose is to disrupt the distribution and consumption of financial services. We think of ourselves as a 150-year-old startup. And we are very proud of our heritage of being Goldman. We are also very proud of doing something new and innovative. And so I think other banks are starting to do similar things, but there are a lot of constraints in general on these regulated entities. And so far, I don't think it's impaired the ability of fintech companies to take market share. So if we step back for a second to look at the big picture, I mean, how big is the fintech industry right now? I've seen estimates of, you know, say over $300 billion, which sounds huge, but in the global financial services industry, you know, still theoretically would leave them with a lot of runway. I mean, where are we kind of in the development of this industry? It really varies by category. So in payments, it's well north of 10% of all the revenue in the payments industry in the United States that goes through software companies. Latest estimates are 15% and growing very quickly. In lending, it's much smaller. You've certainly heard of 
personal loan companies like Lending Club and Upstart and Upgrade and Prosper. But yet, obviously, the vast, vast majority of loans are made by banks and not by these startups. In asset management, you can't really name any startups that have taken market share yet. But in wealth management and brokerage, Robinhood has north of 10 million accounts. In retail banking, Chime has 12 million accounts. So overall, I would say from a revenue perspective, we are still on a weight average basis in the single digits in terms of penetration of fintech companies versus regulated incumbents. But interestingly, if you look at market cap, which is another measure, the latest statistics are it's close to 20%. So either that's dramatic over-exuberance on the part of investors, quite possible, or there's a prediction embedded in there that revenue market share will over time track to that market cap market share. So certainly that's the way that I'm betting. But of course, your listeners can make up their own minds about that. So you mentioned the Great Recession and the financial crisis as a watershed moment for fintech. What about the most recent crisis that we are working our way through, the pandemic? We've seen that hasten the embrace of digital technology, and specifically, we saw a wave of people uh, using Robinhood and other fintech tools to invest in stocks and cryptocurrency. What has the past year to you know 16 months done to the world of fintech as it's transformed kind of the world around us? The last 15 months have brought enormous change to financial services. And some of those changes may well be temporary. And then others, other changes I think will be more permanent. What you asked about, which is the increased prevalence of retail trading activity, strikes me as a short-term change that will revert back something closer to historical norms when people can you know, go outside again, <laughs> when people are back in the office and, and not allowed to or have the leisure to engage in gambling all day. <laughs> it was a goofy aberration driven by stimulus checks and too much leisure time without enough to do. Not to say that Robinhood didn't take advantage of that to gain market share, but the market the retail trading volumes, I believe, will go back down to something similar to what they were historically. Because retail trading is not smart for retail traders. And mm. therefore, it's not a sustainable activity. And people who make the case that finance has somehow been democratized and that retail traders have some newfound edge in the markets, you know, just flies in the face of hundreds of years of finance mm -hmm. theory. But what has changed, I think, durably is that there were a lot of legacy behaviors, behaviors that were done in person in consumer finance in particular. The incumbents were forced to adapt, and the fintech companies were much better suited to adapt. So I think there have been meaningful share shifts from analog to digital in retail banking and across insurance and wealth management and asset management, I think those shifts will prove durable. And then also in, in B2B. 
Brian, it's interesting to hear Matt's take on which consumer behaviors are going to continue post-pandemic and which are more fleeting. Do you tend to agree with him? Yeah, I do. I think the way he framed it made a lot of sense. I mean, we saw this big boom in retail investing over the past year, and I do think some of it was driven by people were stuck at home and they were looking at their phones a lot, and suddenly the apps that they had on their phones had this capability to do things like invest in fractional shares of stocks and cryptocurrency and prices were booming. And I think, you know, we see fluctuation in markets, but the really sticky part of this is that people have embraced these apps and embraced this way of handling their money. And now these fintech companies and these apps can draw them into different kinds of services and people are getting comfortable just with this whole way of interacting with financial institutions. Yeah. And one area that Matt mentioned as seeing a lot of growth as well is B2B fintech businesses. And I talked to someone for this episode whose company is proof of that growth. Zach Perret is the co-founder and CEO of Plaid. And I'm going to let him tell us more about what Plaid does. But essentially, it's the infrastructure that connects fintech apps to your bank. So it allows those apps to access your financial data and vice versa. And Plaid says its customer base grew 60% in 2020. Zach's been in this business for almost 10 years now, so he's got some good perspectives on how the industry overall has grown. Yeah, and we should also point out, Michal, that since Plaid isn't a consumer-facing company, it may not be a familiar name to some of our listeners. However, Plaid has been in the news a lot recently, and it was linked to a very familiar name because last January, Plaid announced that it was going to be acquired by Visa for $5.3 billion. Then, in November, the Justice Department raised antitrust concerns, and the two companies decided earlier this year to call off the deal. I'm guessing you asked Zach about this, Michal? I definitely did, Brian. But first, we talked about Plaid itself. I'm curious if you could just talk about where the idea came from and why you saw a need here. What was missing? In 2012, my co-founder and I uh, set off on this quest to try to build a product for consumers that helped them better manage their money, better understand where they were spending and how they were spending. So basically, we were building a budgeting application. But in trying to build this consumer budgeting application, and by the way, we built uh, like seven or eight different versions of the product, none of which really took off. But in trying to build this, our biggest challenge was actually interacting with the underlying bank data. So how did you get all of your transactions and all of your balances into one place? So you could look at it and have a unified view across your checking account, your savings account, maybe a loan that you have, maybe some investments that you've made. How do you get this unified view? And that was a really hard challenge. There wasn't any infrastructure to create digital finance applications that allowed consumers to connect with accounts. And so we set out first to build these consumer applications that didn't go anywhere. Then we ended up pivoting and building the infrastructure that we really needed and had a lot of our, our friends and, and early customers, frankly, coming to us saying, hey, can we license that infrastructure? And that led to the business that we're building. And actually, one of the early customers that came to us saying, hey, can we license that infrastructure was Venmo. So the way that you think about connecting your bank account to Venmo, that is kind of the infrastructure that we build at Plaid. What other kinds of companies use your product, use the Plaid infrastructure in order to you know, make what they do happen. So digital finance is a gigantic ecosystem. And over the past few years, and we've seen this explosion in what people are calling fintech applications. I call them digital finance applications. They're really one and the same. It's how do we take a financial services product that a consumer needs and put it on the internet, deliver it to them either through a website or more likely through their phone. And so we've been 
fortunate to work with so many different uh, applications across all the financial services. So everything from the way that many of the big banks actually build their internal applications, they need help in figuring out how to onboard or connect to external user accounts to uh, companies like Robinhood and the way that you sign up for a brokerage account there, companies like Expensify and the way that you kind of prepare your expenses, Google Pay, for example, Microsoft Money and Excel. So it's really varied. And you brought up a lot of the names that, you know, are kind of synonymous now with FinTech. But back when you started the company, this was a, a fairly nascent industry still. In what ways do you think it's changed. Like, what, what? How would you characterize the evolution in fintech over the last few years? It's a great question, and we've had so much evolution in digital finance fintech over the the past, frankly, seven or eight years since we started working on this. There are kind of these three waves of digital finance that we've seen come about. The first wave is kind of these totally new digital experiences. So I talked about Robinhood. You can think of Venmo in that category. You think of Square Cash. You can think of all of these kind of fully digitally native applications. The second wave of digital finance that we've seen is the financial institutions themselves. So the big banks themselves building these great digital financial products, some of the mid-tier and long-tail banks, of course, building these as well. And then this interesting third wave is one that emerged over the past 12 months, especially, which is the large technology companies. This is the wave that I joke that every company is a fintech company, um, which it's less of a joke and surprisingly uh, increasingly true, and that every company wants to launch an embedded way to save, an embedded card, some sort of stored value, some sort of tool that both increases retention for the customers that are using that platform, but ultimately also kind of delivers a great financial product on the other side. And the the past 12 months especially have been a meaningful change in consumer adoptions. For example, I think it's 73% of people say that they rely on at least one fintech app in their day-to-day financial life. Something like two-thirds of the population expects that that fintech is the new normal, meaning that even when we can actually walk back into our bank branches, they'll continue to primarily interact via fintech instead of via the physical branch. That's super interesting. I want to ask you about COVID and some of the impact there to companies like yours, but you brought up the big financial institutions, and I can't talk to you without asking you about Visa. This was supposed to be a really big deal, a $5.3 billion deal. It sounded great. It made a lot of sense, but the government didn't think so. How surprised were you or not surprised by that decision? Well, first, I will say the past year, year and a half have not been what anybody expected. (laughs) Certainly not what I expected for more reasons than one. Um, And for me, everything that we do goes back to our mission, which is unlock financial freedom for everyone. And working with Visa would have been a great way to accelerate that, we believe. Obviously, we didn't expect the level of regulatory scrutiny or the regulatory posture that the DOJ chose to take kind of throughout that process. Uh, Had we known that in advance, we certainly would have factored that into the decisions that we made. That said, we feel incredibly lucky that the past 12 months has been, in many senses, kind of an accelerant to our business. In as much as consumers could no longer go into a bank branch, they were now at home, they were now uh, needing these digital financial applications. And that was a, a huge tailwind to the kind of scale and usage of our platform. And despite the posture of the DOJ, the hesitancy on the deal, let's say, we ended up in a place where our business had advanced meaningfully. And when the uh, kind of exclusivity expired, we and Visa, uh, in partnership, made a decision to part ways and, and go separate ways. We made the decision going into the Visa transaction, believing that that was the right choice. The circumstances changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a year later, we made a decision to go to a different direction because we truly believe that this is the fastest way for us to accelerate on the execution of this mission. Interesting. We'll talk a little bit more about COVID and how that's impacted fintech in general. And what do you think is going 
to be the kind of the new norm as we hopefully come out of the pandemic? I think that this is a very unique opportunity for consumer technology to step up and really serve consumers in the way that they need to be served. And over the past 12 months, we've seen a meaningful shift in the pace, frankly, of execution of almost every part of digital finance. The demand was there. The need was there. It was incredibly clear. And what we saw is a massive response from almost every part of financial services. So we saw the banks themselves building digital interfaces, building better ways to communicate with the customers, which is fantastic. We saw them rethinking even the product sets that they were offering to customers. We also saw a huge wave of new companies pop up and new startups kind of pivot and focus on different areas. From a consumer standpoint, we actually saw a massive swing in adoption as well. One of the fastest growing demographics is what I believe it was PayPal called the silver tech demographic. And actually throughout kind of Q2 and Q3, I think even into Q4, it was their fastest growing demographic. I think that's the statistic that they released. Two thirds of the people in the US said that FinTech was a lifeline to them throughout the pandemic. And I'm really eager to understand the ways that FinTech can continue to serve consumers as they transition back from a primarily at home economy to a multifaceted economy over the coming few months. So far, Michal, all of our conversation about fintech has really been focused on the industry here in the U.S., but of course, this is a global phenomenon, and I had the chance to speak with the co-founder of the largest fintech company in Latin America and one of the largest digital banks in the world, Cristina Junquera of Nubank, based in Brazil. The company started out by offering a credit card with no fees and really wanting to create an alternative to the banking system in Brazil. And now it offers all kinds of services, including savings accounts and insurance. Yeah. And Brian, Christina was on our 40 under 40 list last year. She's one of the rare women to found a fintech company. And my favorite tidbit about her is that she signed the company's first round of investment documents while she was at the hospital while in labor with her first daughter. Pretty amazing. That is amazing. That's serious dedication. <laughs> and now fast forward to this week. New Bank just announced that Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway is putting $500 million into the company, which values it at $30 billion. Pretty incredible progress. But let's go back to the beginning. Here's Christina talking about how New Bank came to be in the first place. Uh, so Nubank was started out of this place of outrage, right? Like here in Latin America, and especially in Brazil, we got used to paying some of the highest interest rates in the world, some of the highest fees in the world, and having one of the most horrible customer experiences in the world. My partner, David, who's our CEO, uh, he was coming uh, at this from the venture capital side. He had been working with Sequoia Capital for a few years, and he was just, you know, also puzzled by the fact that nobody wanted to take on financial services. The incumbents looked like the sacred cows that no one could touch, very powerful, and he just saw a great business opportunity. So he eventually left Sequoia and, and decided to start his own company, and that's when we met. And I was coming from the other side. I had been working for one of the incumbent banks for five years, trying to do a lot of change from within and failing miserably. And when we met and the opportunity presented itself, I just had to jump on it. That was it. So how easy or difficult was it to get people in Brazil to jump on this idea of an online bank? 
and give us a, uh, just a, a breakdown of like, what's the size of your business now? How many customers do you have? And you know, how many assets do you have? Sure. So we recently completed eight years since we first started the company, and we're now serving roughly 40 million customers, more or less, here in Brazil. And we've launched also in Mexico and in Colombia. And we've expanded from our first product, which was a credit card, into a savings account and also debit cards and uh, personal loans and investment products and insurance, which we recently launched. So we've been expanding our portfolio to become truly a, a complete financial services slash banking offer, I guess. And um, you asked about the, how hard it was, right? Like uh, to get people to, to get on board. And it was so hard. Building a bank from scratch is probably one of the hardest things that you can do. I guess these days people don't understand what that means because there's so many of them and uh, fintech is super hot these days. But when we started eight years ago, the word fintech hadn't been invented yet. You know, mm -hmm. like people didn't know what a unicorn was. So when we first started this, like crazy, I guess, was one of the nicest things that we were called. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's an oligopoly in place of very powerful people that didn't want anyone coming in. So everything was hard. So you mentioned fintech wasn't a buzzword back then when you started. And you also mentioned there weren't unicorns then, unicorns being startups that are worth a billion dollars or more. Where did your funding come from? You know, you weren't based in Silicon Valley. Where did you get the startup capital to make this happen? That's uh, a big piece of the value that my partner, David, brought to the table. He was coming from the venture capital industry. So when he decided to be an entrepreneur, there were people willing to seed him. Um, by the time we had the first few employees, we had um, $2 million in a seed round. Uh, one million being from Sequoia Capital, the other million being from Casac Ventures, which is the largest venture capital firm in Latin America today. But we, we have almost all the largest and most successful venture capital funds on our cap table, right? We have Founders Fund, we have DSC Global, uh, even Tencent was an investor at some point. Uh, we have Dragoneer, so many of them. Other than adding customers right now, which I, I assume you still see a lot of runway to do that. Where are you finding growth? Like what kinds of products or add-ons to your basic service are working for you right now? And like, where do you see opportunity in that? Yeah, there, there are many avenues of growth. First one, as you mentioned, new customers, we're continuing to see a lot of growth, like still at an accelerating pace month by month, uh, which is great. But of course, like there's a lot of potential uh, in terms of cross-sell in a bank because we do have tens of millions of customers that have both a credit card and the account with the debit card, for instance, like they're not using just one product. And more recently, we've had personal loans that we're now starting to scale. We've recently launched our very first insurance product. There are many more to come. Uh, we recently acquired the largest digital uh, investment broker in Brazil. So there's a lot of room for us to grow on the uh, investment side, on the wealth management side. And plus, if you look at the other geos, like we barely started in Mexico. We, we're now around the mark of 300,000 customers, if I'm not mistaken. And Colombia, just like we're some beta. So there's plenty of room to grow over the next few years. What are you finding now and as you continue to try to scale up in terms of having the talent and the capacity to develop all these products? Are you like struggling to get, you know, the, the talent you need? That is the one real bottleneck that we have. It's not capital, it's not customers, it's not regulation. It, it is talent, right? Like it's people. 
This year already, like we're, it's, it's early June, we've already hired a thousand people this year alone, right? Wow. And we would hire as many software engineers as we could find that, that would, you know, pass uh, or, or bar of quality, right? Like of talent. Uh, we have a very high bar for talent, I should say. Like we've been building, even at the executive level, really a world-class team. We recently brought a new CTO on that was Matt Swan. He came from Booking.com. He's a former executive from Amazon as well. Or, or chief product officer came from Facebook or COO came from Capital One or chief people officer came from uh, Twitter and Uber before. We do have a very strong team uh, running Nubank. And, and that's why we also have offices in different countries that we're not even operating in. So we, we have an office, for instance, in Berlin uh, that allows us to tap into the European telemarket. We have an office in Argentina, in Buenos Aires, even though we're not operating there yet. We have a presence in the U.S. because we bought a company and we're using them as a way to also attract talent from the U.S. market. So definitely, definitely our biggest bottleneck. You know, Brian, it's interesting because I feel like it's just been years and years that we've heard about the death of cash coming. You know, in Silicon Valley, we had all these upstarts pre-Square, pre-some of these companies that we've talked about today that were trying to do digital payments. And it's really only now that we're seeing some real viable alternatives to traditional banking and to cash. Yeah. And I think that's really illustrative of how tech works a lot of the time because a lot of these companies like New Bank and some of the others kind of started with this renegade spirit of there's got to be a better way of doing this. There's got to be a tech solution. There's got to be a more elegant way to manage your finances. And they were kind of upstarts for a long time. And now all of a sudden, these are big companies, you know? I mean, so if we look at Square, which Matt Harris talked about, it jumped on to the Fortune 500 this year for the first time. It grew its revenues by 100% last year. And PayPal made a huge move in the Fortune 500 again this year and grew its profits by like 71% last year. These are booming businesses. But here's the one thing, Michal. As much as I try to tap on my phone and get a lollipop out of it, it never comes out. But you can just, you can use any of your apps now, your payment apps to buy a lollipop. So, you know, there's that, Brian. All right, that's it for today. We'll be back next week with more talk on how tech is reshaping our world. The Brainstorm Podcast is a production of Fortune Media. Our show is written by Megan Arnold and edited by Nicole Vergala. Music is by Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds NYC. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. I I uh, I was so impressed. You're making with- a face at me. <laughs> <laughs>